Thanks, Jason. Did a great job filling in this morning. We sure appreciate you. Well, this past week, um, we definitely have had different things going on here at the church. Definitely a lot we can celebrate with Vacation Bible School and all the, the work that went into that. And Katie and uh, Corby and so many others made it so possible. But also, you would be so proud of our teenagers here in this church. They, are, they literally make it possible for us to meet during the day because there's so many of them that come and give of their time. Uh, they're just a, a great servant mentality uh, spirit around our teenagers, and they just do a wonderful job, and uh, it's so cool to see them, uh, God using them in the way that he's using them. Well, before we get going, I, I do want to um, make mention of this. Keith Anthony, many of you uh, have probably heard of Keith and his family. Uh, I think they've had five generations uh, uh, worship here in our church. He passed away last evening. Uh, so be praying for Keith's family, if you don't mind. Uh, they, they, sure could, they sure could use your prayers. So y'all pray for Keith's family. All right, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Now today... We're going to be looking at something that is more theological and doctrinal than practical. I know so many times we try to stand up here and we try to bring something very practical to you that you can take God's Word, apply it to Monday morning, and kind of go on and that kind of thing. We work very hard to make God's Word relevant to you, and the reason it's so easy to do that is because God's Word is relevant. But it's also important that we take time, especially when the Scripture dictates that, and we're going verse by verse through a, a book of the Bible, that there are times where we have to take a pause from all the practical application and just center our attention on certain aspect of who God is, it's namely Jesus himself. And the reason that's so important is because for us to truly worship him as he truly is, we have to know him as he truly is. And not only that... It also helps us to understand the salvation that he's provided for us because of what he's done. And that's the text we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, there are actually, when you begin to look through scripture, if you were to say, give me five passages that help me understand who Jesus is more fully, if you were to ask that question, here's what they would be. And they're known as the Christological passages in scripture. Now, if you go to most, uh, if you go to seminary, you go to Bible college, you're going to learn that there's four. Well, I took it upon myself to add a fifth one because I think it's equally important. Okay, so so look here, Luke chapter one, the five great Christological passages. Luke chapter one talks about him being supernaturally born. That's the one I added. Don't you think that's important that he's virgin born? I, I, I do. I think it's very important. Number two, John one talks about God in the flesh. Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, he's greater than all. It basically is going to tell you he's above the created order. In, in Colossians 1 and 2, he's creator and Lord. And then in the passage we're going to be looking at today, Philippians chapter 2, he's savior, ruler, and judge of the universe. Now, that's, that's a mouthful. And to say all those things and just put it in six verses is pretty powerful. It lets you know we're looking at some pretty powerful scripture here this morning. So look at the series introduction. And again, I believe this helps us to understand this definition more fully when we understand more about who God is. Joy is the unshakable assurance that God is in control of all the details of our lives. The confidence that ultimately we can trust God in everything that comes into our lives. And the determined purpose to praise him in all things. 
And so today we're talking about choose joy following Jesus' example. Introduction. Even though Jesus is Lord of all, he is the greatest example of a servant we can follow. And serving others as Jesus is the path, really, to lasting joy. Serving others. That is the path to, to joy. And, and, and just as we saw last week, if you go to the preceding verses of what we read last week, you can see where we're commanded to do certain things, but we're not just hanging out here by ourselves trying to do these supernatural things that are above our flesh. The text goes on, and Paul writes, be like Christ. Christ is the epitome of what I've just commanded you to do. We'll look at that more fully in just a moment. So the first thing we see here this morning in your outline is the example of Christ. And the first thing that starts is the command. Verse 5 is a command. Philippians 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you. Now, this mind. What is he referring to? To the preceding verses. So those things that we studied last week... This needs to be your mentality. That's what it means We're let this mind be in you. Let this be your mentality. It literally means, if you look at the verbiage here, let this mind be in you over and over again, which was in Christ. Now, that's kind of puts it pretty simple. This is how we identify. This is how we should act. This is what's expected of us. The way this is written is not some casual thought, but an intentional command, meaning that this command should literally define who you are. When people think of you, this is what they need to think about. Look at verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you not only look out for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And here it is. Here's the command. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the example of the command that he's giving us here today. So then we move from the command to the pattern. The pattern. The pattern for living. If someone were to say, okay, give me something that will help me live out what, God, what God's done in my life or what I should do. Well, this command gives you the pattern. Here it is. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, this means that the pattern of Jesus' life that we know was of humility and sur surrender to the purposes of his Father, which brought unity to their relationship. So here's the question, based on how this is phrased and what we see in Scripture. Are you in unity with your Creator? That's, that's a pretty hard question to ask sometimes. It's even harder to answer. But are you in unity with God? How did we even begin the whole process of unity? Well, it came by way of Jesus Christ. And so we've accepted the salvation which he has, but we're sitting here accepting that salvation. But it's more than that. It's following in his steps. It's putting this command and pattern together. And it literally gives us a picture of a child trying to walk in the steps of their father. We are to walk in the pattern or steps of Jesus. Another place we find this is in 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, what we're about to read is here on the screen is basically how do you treat those uh, who's over you in employment, basically. But look at what he says. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. That word fear means respect and honor. Not only to the good and gentle sir, uh, the, the masters, but also to the harsh. 
For this is commendable if because of conscience, of conscience toward God, one endures grief and suffering wrongly. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults to take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, that is language we know nothing of, is it? But then he says this, for this you were called, okay? For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Whatever we see him doing is the pattern of life for us, okay? And, and it's very clear. So following the example of Jesus, walking in humility and unity brings joy not only to the person who follows the example of Jesus, but also joy to the heart of God himself. That's powerful when you think about it, that we are capable, think about this, to bring joy to God's heart. Now, how, how does that come? Well, I think our salvation, when we came to understand what Jesus did on our behalf through salvation, did it please the heart of God that we were saved? There's so many different ways we can, we can please the heart of God. You go back and you look at the sacrificial offerings in the Old Testament. We've been studying this on Wednesday nights. And, and what you'll find is that, that, that it pleases God. When they do it the way God tells them, it pleases God. We have the capability to please the heart of God. Here's another way of looking at what Christ has done. We see the equality of Christ. He is deity as God. Now, now, this is hard for us to get our minds around. But here it is. All that God is, Jesus was, is, and evermore shall be. That's hard to get your mind around, right? Because when we think of Jesus, what do we think of? We think of Bethlehem. We think of a baby showing up, right? But he was before that. John chapter 1 tells us that. All through Scripture, we see that. And what we find here. We find this same Jesus in verse 6. Look what he says. Who being in the form of God. Now this is very important. It means his inner nature is deity while he took on the appearance as a man. Notice it does not say he became God or deity. Now, now there's some cults out there that teach that you can be. Did you know that? That you can be equated with Jesus? But, but Jesus is not really, when you think about it, a part of the created order. He's outside of the created order. The Bible says he was there from the very beginning, from the foundations of the world. The Bible is very clear to say he was not a created being. He's always existed. So being in the form of God means his inner nature is deity while he took on the appearance as a man. But again, notice it does not say he became God or deity. He existed prior to his coming here to earth. And so it's very important that we get our minds around that. Secondly, he's equal with God. This does not mean that Jesus was God-like. He was God-same. He was the same, of the same essence. That means the essence of deity is ascribed to Jesus himself. Now again, this, because many of us have grown up in the church, and we've been hearing these stories since we were children, it doesn't gloss away like someone who comes to know Christ later. But, but I want to tell you this. You don't read this in any other religion in the world. That deity came to this earth and identified with a sinful man. 
And we'll talk more about what that means in just a moment. But what does this mean? Who being in the form of God, listen, did not consider robbery to be equal with God. So basically Jesus, the, the whole idea of sinners around Jesus, Jesus is here. And him basically saying he's equal with God does not demean God in any way. It means God agrees with it. It's part of it. This thought that Jesus had was the thing that offended the religious people in the first century more than anything. When he said this, I guarantee you they all gasped. Here's what he said. Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. Now, how many of you have gone around saying that lately? Hopefully none of you. We'd have to put you under the institution for all I know. But, but the, point, well, the point I'm trying to make here is the fact that he's saying we are the same. Meaning when you look at the Father, you see the Son. And when you see the Son, you've seen the Father. Jesus is saying that they are one and the same. <laughs> Should blow our minds. But here's where it really gets amazing. The emptying of Christ. An all-powerful and sovereign God cannot be humbled but can humble himself. Now, I want you to think about that statement. An all-powerful God cannot be forced to be humiliated or humbled. But what can deity do? It can humble itself based on the authority of what we're about to read. So look at what it tells us. Verse 7 tells us how and why Jesus emptied himself. Verse 7, but made himself, Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So what do we see here? First of all, look on your outline. He became a man, yet he was still God. Yet he was still God. Look at John chapter 1 here on the screen. Doesn't, it says it just as simply as this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh. Wow. And dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Jesus, this verse tells us that Jesus was the God-man. Now here's what should really blow your mind. Here's what that means. It means he got hungry, yet he called himself the bread of life. It means he got thirsty, yet he said he was the living water. I mean, that, again, that should just blow our minds. It, it does not appear that Jesus laid aside or refused, but he refused to lay aside some of his attributes of deity. Listen, when Jesus showed up in the world, the fullness of the deity because he is the same as deity, was still resting in him. He didn't lose his deity. He didn't set it aside. He may have set aside some of the attributes, and we know that's true based on some evidences we find in Scripture. But here's what Philippians chapter 2, the first part, means. But made himself of no reputation. The NIV says this, but made himself nothing. Nothing. That's pretty strong. The ESV, the English Standard Version, said, but emptied himself. Emptied himself. The Amplified Bible says it like this. And this is, it, again, they're putting uh, uh, some doctrine in here, but this is really cool. Amplified Bible says, but emptied himself, which means without renouncing or diminishing his deity. 
But only temporary giving up the outward expression of divine equality and his rightful dignity. Literally, his idea of laying aside. He laid aside. Now, he didn't lay aside his deity. He can't lay aside something that he is. But he laid aside some of those attributes. Some of those attributes. It literally means he emptied himself. This is where we get very controversial in Scripture. There are many views as to what this means. But Jesus emptied himself. We know of three ways he did this based on the evidence of Scripture. He emptied himself in at least these three ways. Number one, he voluntarily accepted the limitations of being a human being. How do we know that? The Bible records he got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. How many of you know those are, can be very limiting when they enter into our world. All those things were in play. His glory, secondly, his glory was hidden from the people. The Old Testament basically says you see God and you die in all his glory. He veiled his glory. Think about that. Thirdly, he gave up the independent use of his relative attributes. Now, some people say, to what limit, we don't know. But there does appear to be in Scripture, there are some things. How many of you know that deity is all-knowing, all-powerful, present everywhere? To what extent Jesus did this, he limited some of that. How do we know that? Because they asked when he was coming back, you remember what he said? Only the Father knows that. What was he doing? He limited his ability of all-knowing. I mean, there's a lot there in Scripture we read. And so all of a sudden, we see all this stuff. But what's the point? The point is Jesus left heaven's throne, humbled himself, and became a man, a God-man on our behalf. Now, how many of you, again, this is amazing stuff. You don't read anything like this anywhere in any other religion. Nothing even close. This is what brings Christianity out alone. That God, deity, those things that we equate as deity came and not only came to this world, suffered on our behalf. The sinless reached out to the sinner, which leads us to the next point. He served humanity. Think about it. As deity, Jesus is worthy to be served. Yet he became not just a man, but a servant of humanity. Now think about that. Servant of humanity. We talk about this all the time. Jesus' favorite title for himself, he, he, he said this over and over again all through Scripture, the Son of Man. He was referring to himself, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. He said that more about himself than any other title he had given. Now, now could, he be, could he have rightfully said, Lord and supreme being of the universe has said, he would have been rightfully justified in every bit of that. But what did he say? The Son of Man has said. The Son of Man has said. The Servant of Man. Think about that. And what it all entails. He did that. How do we know that? Look here in uh, uh, verse 7. Taking the form of a bondservant. Now, the way this is written, and it's important sometimes that you know the, what's going on with the verbs and everything. But the way this is written is written in the active voice, which means this. He was not forced to do this. He chose to do this. And the book of Revelation proves it when you read Revelation chapters 4 and 5. 
It proves it because we have a scene shot of what's going on around the throne, and we see this take place. Then, think about this. It was not done to him, or it would be written in the passive voice. It literally means he took it on his own initiative to do this, to do this. Hmm, pretty powerful when you think about it. Next, he identified with humanity. So verse 7, the last part of verse 7 says this, And coming in the likeness of men, verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man. These words used in the proper context means that Jesus identified with man in the likeness of appearance and certain limitations, but he did not identify with our sinfulness. Okay? There's a big difference. He didn't come in here and experience sin. You see what I'm saying? He experienced the tiredness, thirsty, hunger, grief, sorrow. You can pile all these different things. But he never really grasped. He, and the sin never stuck to him, I guess you could say. And here's why. Jesus was not born in sin as we are. Neither did he acquire a sin nature as Adam. He, if he did, he could not have died for our sin. That's the reason I think it's so important that when we talk about the five great Christological passages, that we must put Luke 1 in there saying that he was supernaturally born. He was not born of man. He was born of God. Of God. So important we get our minds around this. Jesus not only identified with man in the likeness of an appearance, he also identified with man and man's greatest need, which is what? We need to be saved. We can't fix it ourselves. Our sinful nature, the fact we sin, all these different things. We, we can't imagine the fact that we can't work our way, our way there. The Bible literally says that. You can't do it. Someone's got to stand in on your behalf. And it's a Savior. And the Bible says his name is Jesus. Next. <clears throat> We see he died on our behalf of humanity. We see the humility. Verse 8 again. And being found in appearance as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself. We've already seen that he wasn't forced to do this. He did this. This seems to imply that in God's economy, the payment of sin must be the sacrifice and death of something. We saw that in the Old Testament. But even that was a foreshadowing of the fact that it would take a man... To die on our behalf. In the Old Testament, animals. Certain species of animals. But now we fast forward. It was all a foreshadowing. It was all to get us to the man. Who would the man be? The Messiah. Jesus Christ. All that's in play. To complete this thought, here's what we need to understand. Jesus is the God-man. But to fully understand it, to complete this thought, we have two natures. How many of you know that? How many of you remember the cartoons, the little devil on one shoulder, the angels on the other? Don't do this. Do that. Don't do this. We, we got something going on within us. Not quite like that. We have the flesh. How many of you know that the flesh is still alive in you? Yeah, it got you in trouble this week, I guarantee. And we have the spirit. And when both are present, there's a war that takes place within us. That's what makes us like we are, <laughs> in our sinful nature. 
But Jesus has two natures, but they're nothing like that. His two natures, at the time he came on, here on earth, was divine and human. Not touched by sin. Not touched by sin of his own doing. Of his own doing. So these verses seem to imply that the forgiveness of humanity could only have been made possible by a God-man. Okay? So, the emptying led to the humility, which leads to the obedience. Look at the end of verse 8, or near the end. And became, Jesus became obedient to the point of death. Jesus literally surrendered to the plan of his Father. Now, here's what, here's what you don't need to, a lot of people are like, okay, tell me how this must have went down in heaven. Well, Revelation chapters 4 and 5 gives us a clue when it talks about the lamb, you, you can read it for yourself. I don't have time to get in on that. But, but here's what, it wasn't a last minute thing. Did you know that the promise that the God man would come is found in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15? If you go all the way back to Genesis, we've got the creation story. Beautiful creation story in, in Genesis 1 and 2. And at the end, God, this is good, this is good, this is very good. Genesis chapter 3, man is on the scene. He's out doing and having and all this. And all of a sudden, creation falls at the sin of man. Okay? But right after that, God makes a provision. You remember? Makes provision for everything. But then he starts doling out the consequences. But then he ends all that, or he, he really begins all that with a promise. That there's going to be one that will come that will bring the world back in right standing. You find that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Who is that person? It's Jesus. So all of a sudden, the story, the narrative of God becomes one, it goes from one of creator to one of redeemer. All of a sudden, his whole message is to, to bring us back into right standing with himself. And it begins all the way back in Genesis. The, the, the first thoughts of it are there. The first time we hear of it. But it was a part of the plan all along. It wasn't that time where God said, okay, um, any of you guys uh, want to go down here and take care of this? Uh, time seems good. Let's, let's, let's do this. <laughs> no, the plan was all there all along. Before we even sinned, there was a Savior. And he was waiting in the wings. And here he is now. And his name is Jesus. And he came obediently. So the emptying led to the humility, which led to the obedience, which led to the cross. Look at verse 8. And became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. In all of history, death, by way of a cross, was the most shameful of all executions. Even the death of a cross, which really to the Jews was considered a curse. You hang from a tree, you're cursed. Okay, so worst possible death imaginable with humiliation, shame, everything that comes with it was to hang on a cross. From heaven, deity comes as a man to lowly earth to the depths of execution on a cross to become a sinless sacrifice for humanity by far is the greatest story ever told, ever told. Next, we see the exalting of Christ. 
In verses 9 through 11, while not stated, it seems to be a victory cry of the, of the resurrection, which completes the greatest story ever, ever told. In the, in the spirit world, here's what you need to understand. And you read it in Scripture from the very words of Jesus. In the, in the, in the spirit world, your way up is down. How many, of you know, how many of you know the examples? If you want to be first, you must be last. If you're last, you're going to be promoted to first. But where do you start? You start last. It basically tells us that the kingdom of God is flipped from what's here on the earth. It's not what you think. It's never going to, if you go by the, the plans of man, the philosophy of man, the, the, the pride that rests in the flesh, you'll never get anywhere. But deity comes on the scene and shows us it's all flipped. We've been doing it all wrong from the very beginning. And so, and so basically here it is. 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that, in, that he may exalt you in due time. Think about this. One day, the Bible says, we will be exalted. We were sinful, but we accepted what the Savior did on our behalf, and he's going to exalt us as a, as a result. But can you imagine the one who came, who made it all possible, what that exaltation will look like? Have you ever thought about, what, well, how's it going to look for Jesus? Well, we got it right here. It's right here in front of us. First of all, we see the exalter is God. Verse 9. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. Now, the exaltation of Christ involves both the resurrection and the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father who is in heaven. Right hand of the Father implies honor and authority. All that's been given to him. Okay? Now... God has not only exalted him to his right hand, but he's also given him something. And it's a name. A name. The authority is his name. In most all ancient cultures, a name meant something. A name would show promise, purpose, or position. You, if you were given that name. The name Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. Ruth's name in Hebrew means companion. Jesus' name in Hebrew means Savior. That was given to him. How do we know? Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God has, all, has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That, that, that phrase, above every name, literally means there is not another name you can give you can give another that means more than this name. It supersedes any other name. There's not, there is not another name that even comes close. Now, how does that play out for our salvation? For, for, for the world's salvation? Acts 4.12. There, now, nor is there, any, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men... By which we must be saved. And who is he talking about? Very clear, he's talking about Jesus. This whole message here is Jesus. The name is one of honor and authority. A name of exalted supremacy. A name that is truly our only hope. Next, the exalting of Christ. We see the acknowledgement. Where's this coming from? We see the idea of bow and confess. In this case, there's a universal acknowledgement. Look at verse 10. That at the name of this one named Jesus, okay, 
Every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those even under the earth. But there's two words that really stand out. The first is bow. And it's not just some proper protocol. It is a sincere act of reverence and submission. Reverence and submission. And the Bible says it's coming from three places. But you know what those three places represent? All the created order. All the created order. Everything that's ever been created was touched by sin and now has the ability to be touched by a Savior in which his name is Jesus. Has that ability. So what does this mean? Well, in heaven, we see that there are angels praising the name of Jesus. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, the redeemed ones on earth, they will praise his name. Even the most rebellious under the earth, who would they be? The fallen angels. Uh, it's the idea of the unsaved. Everyone is going to bow at this name. Not only do we see a bow, we also see confess. And it literally means to come together to agree. So you mean to tell me, this is what should really blow your mind. You mean to tell me people who, who are part of the created order, from the very beginning, from Lucifer himself, from Satan himself, all the way here, all, all the rebellious people we can read about in history who've done the most damage, you mean to tell me all them, including they're all going to confess him as Lord, supreme? Absolutely. That day is coming. That day is coming. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those of heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. For those who are saved, Jesus is their Savior. He is their worship. He is their Lord. For the unsaved, he will be seen as all-powerful, sovereign, their judge, and even Lord. For all the groups, it will be admission to his absolute sovereignty, his absolute authority, his absolute rule. And the question many have asked is when? Is when? Next, we see the exalting of Christ. The purpose is God's glory. In verse 11, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does this tell us? The whole plan, everything that's associated with our salvation, everything that's associated with supreme authority over this earth, all comes from God himself. He's the one that set it all in order. He's the one that motivated it to come the way it did. And that's what he's talking about. So this is a, per, a, per, a picture of what brings and will bring joy to the heart of God. That all of creation would acknowledge his son. And I want to close with this. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. It's near to back. Now, when will this happen? I believe the Bible is very clear when this is going to happen. That what's called the great white throne judgment. Y'all, let me just tell you this. You do not want to be a part of the great white throne judgment. Maybe an onlooker, but not a part. Let me tell you why it's so, it's, it's, it's so terrifying. Revelation chapter 11. I'll let the Bible speak for itself. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face... The earth and the heaven fled away. That's Jesus. And there was found no place for them. There was no way that there was a connection made between this person who's awesome and mighty 
and those who are standing before him. There's no place for them. Did we find place with him, those who know him as our Lord and Savior? Yeah, we found place with him, but it won't be found here. And I saw the dead, small and great, from the mighty leaders of the, of the earth, of our history, all the way down to, to the small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged, here it is, according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. Did you know that there's book-taking, note-taking on us? The Bible makes it clear. Nothing slips our God. Nothing slips him. And there's this book that's there. It's recording our works. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, second time we see this, according to their works. Let me just tell you this. I'm going to fill you in on something. You never want to be judged on your works. You never want to be judged on that. The Bible literally says they are as filthy rags before a holy God. Why? Because we're tarnished. Why? Because we were born in sin. Why? Because we proved we were born in sin by becoming sinners ourselves. And all of a sudden, all these things are happening. And these are the people who, who had no one speaking up for them because we found the one we needed to speak up to when we were here on this earth. We called out the name of Jesus. He's the one that brought our salvation. And as a result, we will never be judged by our works. How many can I get a hallelujah for that? But we will be judged based on did we receive Christ. And then it says... Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Cease to, gone. And anyone not written in the book of life was cast into this lake of fire. Cast. My name is in the book of life, not because I earned it. Not, there's no way I'm gonna be walking the streets of gold saying, I got here. I made it. No, it will be through humility that he made it possible through the name of Jesus Christ. So, the question is this. Here's our conclusion. The only way to have true joy is in the presence of God. The only way. Jesus and his example of humility is the only path to his presence. Therefore, there is no other name, that name being Jesus, that brings true joy into the life of a true follower than the name of Jesus. So how does that make it possible for us? Number one, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, here's what you're literally saying based on the scripture we read today. You're saying, hey, I can get all that God plans for me by just doing these works, showing up at church, doing the right thing, doing all these things. That's fine. That's good. That's good. That should be a striving thing in your life. But it's not going to be the way to salvation. The way to salvation is through the acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And when you come to grips with who he is as your Savior, you're literally looking at your sin and trading that sin for what he offers. And that's a salvation plan. A salvation plan. That you can be made right before God. Because when he hung on the cross, let me just say this. He did identify with sin, but it wasn't his sin he identified with. It was our sin. It was placed on him. It was judged on him. That is the only way 
we have salvation. That is the only way we escape this dreadful judgment I just read about. It's through Jesus. So how do you do it? Repent of your sins. Turn your heart towards God. Have faith in Him. Living the days forward. Making Him Lord of your life. That's how it happens. So I'm going to ask you right now, if you'll just stand to your feet. We're not going to sing this morning. Just stand to your feet. Bow with me if you will. There's going to be prayer partners here at the front. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we would love to show you more clearly how that's possible for you here today. And by the way, you have the greatest need in this room. Greatest need. Father, we come to you now. We thank you so much for the name of Jesus. We thank you so much for what he's done on our behalf and that we can stand here today, many of us saying, yes, we have a Savior. But there may be those that are here today who aren't so certain of that. Father, I just pray that before they leave this room today that they've come to terms with you, that they have been made right through Jesus. Not their own merit, not because they're trusting in some baptism or whatever it may be, but they're trusting fully in you and the provision you made through Jesus, and that is our salvation. Father, help them to come to know you here today. We thank you for what you desire. In Jesus' name, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, prayer partners will be here at the front. Just do what God's calling you to do. Would you bow with us for these moments? Father, again, we thank you for the name of Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that you'll continue to draw these scriptures into our minds, Father. I think so many times we get a little flippant about who you are. You're definitely not the man upstairs. You're definitely not one that is here to do our bidding. Father, help us to realize that your son is Lord. Savior, King, Supreme Authority. Father, help us to acknowledge that daily, moment by moment. Father, that we would come to an accurate view of who you are, but also the place your Son has in Jesus. Father, help us to draw close to that awesomeness and Supreme Authority that rest in you. Father, we pray for our nation right now and unless you intervene, 
Lord, we got some difficult days ahead of us. But Father, help us as a community of believers to realize that none of this is greater than you are. No matter how desperate we become as a nation, no matter how far we've fallen, there's still a Savior out there wooing those to you. Father, help us to somehow be a part of that process. Not to be the ones that are standing by talking about, oh, it's so terrible, it's just this, it's that. But Lord, we would be those that would cast hope in a dark world. That we would be part of the solution by bringing your name to those who are walking in darkness. Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for just all that you've done on our behalf. Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here this morning. You're dismissed.